Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're still here with me for episode three of Storytime for Grownups. We're going to be reading chapter three of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. So if you've just found us, I am so excited that you are here and that you have found us. This is fantastic. If you are not already familiar with the book of Jane Eyre, you may want to pause this episode and go back to episode one because we are reading Jane Eyre chapter by chapter and pausing from time to time for a few notes. So If this is your first episode that you're tuning into, you may want to go back to chapter one, but if you would like to just jump right in with us, then come along for the ride. We're going to do chapter three today. Before we get started, a couple just quick reminders. You can find out more about me on my website, faithkmore.com. You can also go to Amazon and check out my books. I have two. Christmas Carol is a novel and Saving Cinderella, What Feminists Get Wrong About Disney Princesses and How to Set It Right is a work of nonfiction about Disney princesses. So you can find those both on Amazon. Also, if you just want to get in touch with me, you can either contact me via the contact page of my website or you can find me on X. I'm at Faith K. Moore. You can just send me an X, a tweet, or you can DM me there as well and I get those too. Speaking of contacting me, I always offer at the end of each episode an opportunity for you to contact me with questions or comments about the chapter that we've just read. So after this episode, you can get in touch and ask me anything about chapter three. And, you know, it can be anything from something that was still unclear. I didn't offer a note that you wished I had. You want me to define a word or explain what was going on in a certain passage. Or if something was particularly interesting to you and you want to just have me discuss it a little bit further, you could let me know about that as well. And you can contact me, as I say, either via X at Faith K. Moore or on my website, faithkmore.com, where you can click on the contact button and fill out the form there. So we're going to start this episode with a question, and this is a little different. I got this question several times this week, so this isn't attributed to any one person in particular and actually isn't completely related to chapter two. It's related more generally to the book. Several people this time asked me, why Jane Eyre? Why did I choose Jane Eyre for the first book to read aloud on Storytime for Grown Ups, and I feel like that's probably a fair question given that we're a couple chapters in, and maybe so far you're wondering what exactly it is about this book that is meant to keep you here for many, many more chapters to come. So I will give you my reason, and then um, we'll get started with the chapter. So you've probably heard me say at some point that Jane Eyre is my favorite book of all time, and that is true, and that is selfishly one of the reasons why I chose it for this, the first book of Storytime for Grown Ups. I figured, you know, I didn't know if anybody was going to listen to this podcast, so I figured, hey, I might as well be reading the book that I really love and entertaining myself if no one's going to pay attention. And so, first of all, I wanted to say how grateful I am that you actually are listening. You know, this week, the 
the reviews on Apple Podcasts populated. It takes a little while for them to put the reviews up there. And so I couldn't see them for a while. And they suddenly appeared. And there were so many of them. And they were saying such lovely things. And I just cannot thank you enough. So Thank you for being here, for listening, and for posting those reviews, for taking the time. And if you haven't done so already and you are so inclined, I would love if you would leave a five-star review. It really helps. Um, So that reason is now defunct because you're here and you're listening. So I'm so glad. Um, But I did want to pick something that I enjoyed because I wanted to share that with you. I didn't want to be reading something that I felt like was a slog. And then you would probably feel like it was a slog too. And then what's the point of any of this? So that's one reason. But... Another reason is that I genuinely believe that Jane Eyre has something for everyone. Yes, at its heart, it's a love story, and that may or may not appeal to you, but it's so much more than that. It's also a mystery. There's a huge mystery at the center of this story. It is a gothic story. It has gothic elements, which I know is appealing to a lot of people, particularly people who are interested in the supernatural or sci-fi fantasy type things. Um, it's also what's called a buildings roman, which is uh, the the story of the kind of spiritual journey, let's say, of one person. It also deals with themes of Christianity and morality, and it tackles issues which were important at the time, but are also still important now. So it is actually relevant to today. So I wanted something that as many people as possible could sink their teeth into, as many people as possible could feel at home here at Storytime for Grown Ups in this first season. And, you know, I it probably won't be true for every single person who tunes in, but I hope that it's true for enough of you that it will keep you here listening and hopefully help you to find a way into these classic books that maybe you couldn't find before. So that's my reasoning behind why I chose Jane Eyre. And again, you can write to me and let me know if I made a good choice along the way. So get in touch after this episode and let me know what spoke to you in chapter three. All right, let's get started. It's story time. So where we left off, Jane had been locked in the Red Room, which was the room where Mr. Reed had died and had become so scared that she screamed until Bessie and Miss Abbott showed up. And then Mrs. Reed had come and said she should be locked up for even longer for screaming, and that caused Jane to faint. Chapter 3 The next thing I remember is waking up with a feeling as if I had had a frightful nightmare and seeing before me a terrible red glare crossed with thick black bars. I heard voices, too, speaking with a hollow sound, and as if muffled by a rush of wind or water. Agitation, uncertainty, and an all-predominating sense of terror confused my faculties. Ere long, ere here means before, so before long, I became aware that someone was handling me, lifting me up and supporting me in a sitting posture, and that more tenderly than I had ever been raised or upheld before. I rested my head against a pillow or an arm and felt easy. In five minutes more, the cloud of bewilderment dissolved. I knew quite well that I was in my own bed and that the red glare was the nursery fire. It was night. A candle burnt on the table. Bessie stood at the bed foot with a basin in her hand and a gentleman sat in a chair near my pillow, leaning over me. I felt an inexpressible relief, a soothing conviction of protection and security when I knew that there was a stranger in the room 
an individual not belonging to Gateshead and not related to Mrs. Reed. Turning from Bessie, though her presence was far less obnoxious to me than that of Abbott, for instance, would have been, I scrutinized the face of the gentleman. I knew him. It was Mr. Lloyd, an apothecary, sometimes called in by Mrs. Reed when the servants were ailing. For herself and the children, she employed a physician. Well, who am I? he asked. I pronounced his name, offering him at the same time my hand. He took it, smiling and saying, We shall do very well by and by. Then he laid me down and, addressing Bessie, charged her to be very careful that I was not disturbed during the night. Having given some further directions and intimated that he should call again the next day, he departed to my grief. I felt so sheltered and befriended while he sat in the chair near my pillow, and as he closed the door after him, all the room darkened and my heart again sank. Inexpressible sadness weighed it down. "'Do you feel as if you should sleep, miss?' asked Bessie rather softly. Scarcely dared I answer her, for I feared the next sentence might be rough. I will try. Would you like a drink? Or could you eat anything? No, thank you, Bessie. Then I think I shall go to bed, for it is past twelve o'clock, but you may call me if you want anything in the night. Wonderful civility, this. It emboldened me to ask a question. Bessie, what is the matter with me? Am I ill? You fell sick, I suppose, in the red room, with crying. You'll be better soon, no doubt. Bessie went into the housemaid's apartment, which was near. I heard her say, Sarah, come and sleep with me in the nursery. I daren't for my life be alone with that poor child tonight. She might die. It's such a strange thing she should have that fit. I wonder if she saw anything. Mrs. was rather too hard. Sarah came back with her. Sarah is another servant. They both went to bed. They were whispering together for half an hour before they fell asleep. I caught scraps of their conversation, from which I was able only too distinctly to infer the main subject discussed. Something passed her, all dressed in white, and vanished. A great black dog behind him. Three loud raps on the chamber door. A light in the churchyard just over his grave, etc., etc. At last they both slept. The fire and the candle went out. For me... The watches of that long night passed in ghastly wakefulness. Ear, eye, and mind were alike strained by dread, such dread as children only can feel. No severe or prolonged bodily illness followed this incident of the Red Room. It only gave my nerves a shock, of which I feel the reverberation to this day. Yes, Mrs. Reed, to you I owe some fearful pangs of mental suffering. But I ought to forgive you, for you knew not what you did. While rending my heartstrings, you thought you were only uprooting my bad propensities. Next day, by noon, I was up and dressed, and sat wrapped in a shawl by the nursery hearth. I felt physically weak and broken down, but my worst ailment was an unutterable wretchedness of mind, a wretchedness which kept drawing from me silent tears. No sooner had I wiped one salt drop from my cheek than another followed. Yet, I thought, I ought to have been happy, for none of the reeds were there. They were all gone out in the carriage with their mamma. Abbott, too, was sewing in another room, and Bessie, as she moved hither and thither, putting away toys and arranging drawers, addressed to me every now and then a word of unwanted kindness. Unwanted doesn't mean she doesn't want it. It means unexpected here. This state of things should have been to me a paradise of peace, accustomed as I was to a life of ceaseless reprimand and thankless fagging. Fagging is hard work. But, in fact... 
My racked nerves were now in such a state that no calm could soothe and no pleasure excite them agreeably. Bessie had been down into the kitchen, and she brought up with her a tart on a certain brightly painted china plate, whose bird of paradise, nestling in a wreath of convolvi and rosebuds, had been wont to stir in me a most enthusiastic sense of admiration, and which plate I had often petitioned to be allowed to take into my hand in order to examine it more closely, but had always hitherto been deemed unworthy of such a privilege. This precious vessel was now placed on my knee, and I was cordially invited to eat the circlet of delicate pastry upon it. Vain favor, coming like most other favors long deferred and often wished for, too late. I could not eat the tart, and the plumage of the bird, the tints of the flowers, seemed strangely faded. I put both plate and tart away. Bessie asked if I would have a book. The word book acted as a transient stimulus, and I begged her to fetch Gulliver's Travels from the library. This book I had again and again perused with delight. I considered it a narrative of facts, and discovered in it a vein of interest deeper than what I found in fairy tales. For as to the elves, having sought them in vain amongst foxglove leaves and bells, under mushrooms and beneath the ground ivy mantling old walnooks, I had at length made up my mind to the sad truth that they were all gone out of England, to some savage country, where the woods were wilder and thicker, and the population more scant. Whereas Lilliput and Brobdingnag, being, in my creed, solid parts of the earth's surface, I doubted not that I might one day, by taking a long voyage, see with my own eyes the little fields, houses and trees, the diminutive people, the tiny cows, sheep and birds of the one realm, and the cornfields forest high, the mighty mastiffs, the monster cats, the tower-like men and women of the other. She's saying she, she believes in the story of Gulliver's travels and she thinks it's true and she thinks she can find all of its magical elements if she just traveled far enough in search of them. Yet, when this cherished volume was now placed in my hand, when I turned over its leaves and sought in its marvelous pictures the charm I had till now never failed to find, all was eerie and dreary. The giants were gaunt goblins, the pygmies malevolent and fearful imps, Gulliver a most desolate wanderer in most dread and dangerous regions. I closed the book, which I dared no longer peruse, and put it on the table beside the untasted tart. Bessie had now finished dusting and tidying the room, and having washed her hands, she opened a certain little drawer, full of splendid shreds of silk and satin, and began making a new bonnet for Georgiana's doll. Meantime, she sang. Her song was, In the days when we went gypsying, a long time ago. I had often heard the song before, and always with lively delight, for Bessie had a sweet voice, at least I thought so. But now, though her voice was still sweet, I found in its melody an indescribable sadness. Sometimes, preoccupied with her work, she sang the refrain very low, very lingeringly. A long time ago came out like the saddest cadence of a funeral hymn. She passed into another ballad, this time a really doleful one. My feet they are sore, and my limbs they are weary. Long is the way, and the mountains are wild. Soon will the twilight close moonless and dreary over the path of the poor orphan child. Why did they send me so far and so lonely, up where the moors spread and grey rocks are piled? Men are hard-hearted and kind angels only watch o'er the steps of a poor orphan child. Yet distant and soft the night breeze is blowing, 
Clouds there are none, and clear stars beam mild. God, in his mercy, protection is showing, comfort and hope to the poor orphan child. Even should I fall o'er the broken bridge passing, or stray in the marshes by false lights beguiled, still will my father, with promise and blessing, take to his bosom the poor orphan child. There is a thought that for strength should avail me, though both of shelter and kindred despoiled. Heaven is a home, and a rest will not fail me. God is a friend to the poor orphan child. Come, Miss Jane, don't cry, said Bessie as she finished. She might as well have said to the fire, don't burn. But how could she divine the morbid suffering to which I was a prey? In the course of the morning, Mr. Lloyd came again. What, already up? said he as he entered the nursery. Well, nurse, how is she? Bessie answered that I was doing very well. Then she ought to look more cheerful. Come here, Miss Jane. Your name is Jane, is it not? Yes, sir, Jane Eyre. Well, you have been crying, Miss Eyre. Can you tell me what about? Have you any pain? No, sir. Oh, I dare say she's crying because she could not go out with Mrs. in the carriage, interposed Bessie. Surely not. Why, she is too old for such pettishness. I thought so, too, and my self-esteem being wounded by the false charge, I answered promptly. I never cried for such a thing in my life. I hate going out in the carriage. I cry because I am miserable. Oh, fie, miss, said Bessie. The good apothecary appeared a little puzzled. I was standing before him. He fixed his eyes on me very steadily. His eyes were small and gray. Not very bright, but I dare say I should think them shrewd now. He had a hard-featured yet good-natured-looking face. Having considered me at leisure, he said, What made you ill yesterday? She had a fall, said Bessie, again putting in her word. Fall? Why, that is like a baby again. Can't she manage to walk at her age? She must be eight or nine years old. I was knocked down, was the blunt explanation jerked out of me by another pang of mortified pride. But that did not make me ill, I added, while Mr. Lloyd helped himself to a pinch of snuff. As he was returning the box to his waistcoat pocket, a loud bell rang for the servant's dinner. He knew what it was. That's for you, nurse, said he. You can go down. I'll give Miss Jane a lecture till you come back. Bessie would rather have stayed, but she was obliged to go because punctuality at meals was rigidly enforced at Gateshead Hall. The fall did not make you ill. What did then? pursued Mr. Lloyd when Bessie was gone. I was shut up in a room where there is a ghost till after dark. I saw Mr. Lloyd smile and frown at the same time. Ghost? What? You are a baby after all. You're afraid of ghosts? Of Mr. Reed's ghost I am. He died in that room and was laid out there. Neither Bessie nor anyone else will go into it at night, if they can help it. And it was cruel to shut me up alone without a candle. So cruel that I think I shall never forget it. Nonsense. And is it that makes you so miserable? Are you afraid now, in the daylight? No, but night will come again before long. And besides, I am unhappy. Very unhappy for other things. What other things? Can you tell me some of them? How much I wish to reply fully to this question. How difficult it was to frame any answer. Children can feel, but they cannot analyze their feelings. And if the analysis is partially affected in thought, 
they know not how to express the result of the process in words. Fearful, however, of losing this first and only opportunity of relieving my grief by imparting it, I, after a disturbed pause, contrived to frame a meager, though as far as it went, true response. This is Jane's first and perhaps only opportunity to tell someone from the outside how she's being treated by Mrs. Reed's, Reed in her house, and even though it's hard for her to explain it, she really wants to try. For one thing, I have no father or mother, brothers or sisters. You have a kind aunt and cousins. Again, I paused, then bunglingly announced, But John Reed knocked me down and my aunt shut me up in the red room. Mr. Lloyd, a second time, produced his snuff box. Don't you think Gateshead Hall a very beautiful house? asked he. Are you not very thankful to have such a fine place to live at? It is not my house, sir. And Abbott says I have less right to be here than a servant. Pooh, you can't be silly enough to wish to leave such a splendid place. If I had anywhere else to go, I should be glad to leave it. But I can never get away from Gateshead till I am a woman. Perhaps you may. Who knows? Have you any relations beside Mrs. Reed? I think not, sir. None belonging to your father? I don't know. I asked Aunt Reed once, and she said possibly I might have some poor, low relations called heir, but she knew nothing about them. If you had such, would you go to them? I reflected. Poverty looks grim to grown people, still more so to children. They have not much idea of industrious, working, respectable poverty. They think of the word only as connected with ragged clothes, scanty food, fireless grates, rude manners, and debasing voices. Poverty, for me, was synonymous with degradation. No, I should not like to belong to poor people, was my reply. Not even if they were kind to you? I shook my head. I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind. And then, to learn to speak like them, to adopt their manners, to be uneducated, to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes, nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead? No, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste. So even though she's treated differently than the Reed children, she's not treated like a servant either, and so she doesn't want to leave so much that she'd have to become a servant or a poor person in order to do it. But are your relatives so very poor? Are they working people? I cannot tell. Aunt Reed says if I have any, they must be a beggarly set. I should not like to go a-begging. Would you like to go to school? Again, I reflected. I scarcely knew what school was. Bessie sometimes spoke of it as a place where young ladies sat in the stocks, wore backboards, and were expected to be exceedingly genteel and precise. John Reed hated his school and abused his master, but John Reed's tastes were no rule for mine, and if Bessie's accounts of school discipline, gathered from the young ladies of a family where she had lived before coming to Gateshead, were somewhat appalling, her details of certain accomplishments attained by these same young ladies were, I thought, equally attractive. She boasted of beautiful paintings of landscapes and flowers by them executed, of songs they could sing and pieces they could play, of purses they could net, of French books they could translate, till my spirit was moved to emulation as I listened. Besides, school would be a complete change. It implied a long journey, an entire separation from Gateshead, an entrance into a new life. I should indeed like to go to school, was the audible conclusion of my musings. Well, well, 
Who knows what may happen, said Mr. Lloyd as he got up. The child ought to have a change of air and scene, he added, speaking to himself. Nerves not in a good state. Bessie now returned. At the same moment, the carriage was heard rolling up the gravel walk. Is that your mistress, nurse? asked Mr. Lloyd. I should like to speak to her before I go. Bessie invited him to walk into the breakfast room and led the way out. In the interview which followed between him and Mrs. Reed, I presume, from after occurrences, that the apothecary ventured to recommend my being sent to school, and the recommendation was no doubt readily enough adopted. For, as Abbott said, in discussing the subject with Bessie when both sat sewing in the nursery one night after I was in bed and, as they thought, asleep, Mrs. was, she dared say, glad enough to get rid of such a tiresome, ill-conditioned child who always looked as if she were watching everybody and scheming plots underhand. Abbott, I think, gave me credit for being a sort of infantine Guy Fox. Mrs. Reed was all too eager to agree with the apothecary and send Jane to school because she wants to get rid of Jane. On that same occasion, I learned, for the first time, from Miss Abbott's communications to Bessie, that my father had been a poor clergyman, that my mother had married him against the wishes of her friends, who considered the match beneath her, that my grandfather Reed was so irritated at her disobedience he cut her off without a shilling, that after my mother and father had been married a year, the latter caught the typhus fever while visiting among the poor of a large manufacturing town where his curacy was situated and where that disease was then prevalent, that my mother took the infection from him and both died within a month of each other. So Jane just learned that her father was a poor priest, but her mother married him anyway, which caused her family to disown her because she was marrying below her station. And then the father got sick visiting the poor as part of his job and gave that illness to the mother, and that's how they both died. Bessie, when she heard this narrative, sighed and said, Poor Miss Jane is to be pitied too, Abbott. Yes, responded Abbott, if she were a nice, pretty child, one might compassionate her forlornness, but one really cannot care for such a little toad as that. Not a great deal, to be sure, agreed Bessie. At any rate, a beauty like Miss Georgiana would be more moving in the same condition. Yes, I dote on Miss Georgiana, cried the fervent Abbott. Little darling, with her long curls and her blue eyes and such a sweet color as she has, just as if she were painted. Bessie, I could fancy a Welsh rabbit for supper. So could I, with a roast onion. Come on, we'll go down. They went. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact, and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued. Thank you.